Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Just because we have a mask on doesn't mean you can't say hello. Um, if this is your first time here, my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team and just so grateful that you decided to spend a portion of your Sunday here and hope that Hill City becomes a place that uh, you can call home and just grateful that you're here. If you've got any questions today on your way out, uh, you can talk with the people at the info bar and they'd love to help you get connected and answer any questions that you do have. Plus, we have a gift for you if this is your first time. So um, we're just happy that you're here. Uh, we're in week number two of this series um, called First Love and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians or the letter to Ephesians uh, for 11 weeks together and taking a little bit of a deeper dive into this letter that Paul wrote. And uh, last week we talked about um, the significance of this letter and what it is. And um, the reason why we talk about first love is because 25 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, uh, he, uh, we find out that they've kind of gotten away from what they really were about what they got away from, what they really loved, and this idea of loving God and loving people so well. And what inevitably what ended up happening was their church began to lose some of the influence that they had within the culture. And so in the book of Revelation, it says, man, why have you forgotten your first love? And so what we wanted to do is take 11 weeks to kind of look at, like, what was their first love? What did it look like? And what was behind all of it? This letter to the church at Ephesus was written in roughly 65 AD. It was one of the, uh, what's called a circular letter, meaning um, what it was wasn't just specifically the church at Ephesus. It started in the church at Ephesus, but this letter got actually um, brought to other cities throughout that area. Um, Ephesus was the hub of Christianity. All right, it started off in Antioch, but then it got moved to Ephesus because Ephesus was like the hub of a lot of different things. It was the second largest city in the empire at that point in time. And as we see throughout, as we talked about last week, as we see throughout uh, the letter, um, these two words actually come up. Revelation and reconciliation, uh, or I should say the theme comes up of revelation and reconciliation. Uh, because here's what ends up happening. Paul uh, inevitably, and you'll hear this every single week, Paul will say something is being revealed. And when that something is revealed, what ends up happening is a reconciling also happens. Meaning we're either reconciled to God or reconciled to people within that. And so we'll see that every single um, week. And so um, today we're actually going to go into Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. And uh, this is a very familiar verse if you read the letter. A lot of people talk about this verse because, or this passage because of this word, we are God's masterpiece or God's workmanship. And you've probably heard people talk about that before because they love the idea of, man, this is the same word that's used for a poem. It's like poemon. And that God like, he like was so creative in like forming you and everything. You're like God's poem. And that sounds great. And that's cool. I mean, it's part of it. So it's, if you've heard that sermon before, that's awesome. Um, but we skip over some of the other parts of it that I think are also important because Paul's going to talk a lot about today about what it means to be made new. I mean, you know, we're in uh, kind of the first of the year still and people want something new to happen, right? How many of you guys made a New Year's resolution of some kind? Yeah. I didn't, but like, the, like some people do. And, um, and so like you want something new and we want this kind of newness. You know, what's interesting about um, God and bringing something new is God, when the spirit of God is working in your life, something new is going to come about. Um, you will not remain the same. The Spirit of God will always shift and change you. The Spirit of God will bring something new to your life. And I know sometimes people are like, yeah, but Wags and Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. And I'm like, yeah, but you're just saying that because you want to be a downer. Like, you don't actually know, like, what that means, right? Like, there's, what, what, in the writer of Ecclesiastes, what he's saying is, like, at the core level, there's nothing new. 
at the core level of stuff. But here's the reality. God's always doing something new. And Isaiah talks about God's doing something new. And so God's always doing something new. And, he, and here's the thing. He wants to do something new in you. All right? He wants to do something new in me. So I don't care if this is, you are a seasoned vet at this Christian thing. Like, he wants to do something new in you. If you're brand new to this, like, he wants to do something new. He wants to see this newness, this real life that can come about. And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, today in Ephesians chapter to, as Paul begins to describe, like, kind of the why behind this and how we be, we be, we're made new. I will say this, though. Sometimes in the Bible, um, here's what happens. Sometimes the Bible gives you a hug, all right, and it feels good. Sometimes the Bible gives you an encouragement, and it feels, like, really good. Sometimes it gives you a little, just like a little jab. It can sting a little bit, all right? Sometimes it goes jab and a hook and an uppercut, and you're just like, goodness gracious, okay? Um, the first part of these first three verses, it's like, um, have you ever said to someone, like, you flex and you tense up, and you're like, go ahead, hit me. You know, like, like Max and Nevaeh, they're still, like, young enough for me to do this. Like, they're, they're 13, and, and they're like, Dad, let me hit you. I'm like, All right, go ahead, just go ahead and hit me, right? Like, and so you kind of, like, flex, and you kind of get up, and that's what you're going to need to do today for the first three verses, all right? So you're just going to need to tense up. Let's just, I want you to practice. Everyone tense up, flex your core, and just say, go ahead, hit me. Thank you. All right, so, so that's what Paul is, is going to do here in this first three verses. Because you're going to see right off the top, he's going to say something that you're going to be like, no, not me. And then he's going to say, no, 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 all of us. Okay, so let's watch this. Ephesians chapter, oh, hold on, let me get to this. Ephesians 2 says this, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Is that anybody? No, we don't like to think that way, right? Like, whoa, 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 Paul. Like, this is Paul talking, not me, so don't get mad at me. It's like, you were once dead, and you had a lot of sin because of your disobedience. And Paul's like, you actually weren't alive. Like, you might have been walking around, but you weren't alive. You were, you were dead. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Obeying who? So if you were walking in today and I said, have you, have you ever obeyed the devil? He'd be like, why would you say that? <laughs> right? But what Paul says is like, no, everyone did at some point. You, you're obeying the devil. He said the commander of the powers of this unseen world. We talked a little bit about that last week. He says he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That just means the, the flesh, like kind of our flesh nature. He says, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, or another word for this here that we don't like, is wrath, just like everyone else. So here's the, Paul kicks off, again, to some of you that are familiar with your Bibles, um, we're going to get to the masterpiece part, and we love that verse. But man, he starts off and he's like, you, you don't get there until you realize this part. Like you can, you can quote the masterpiece verse and God's workmanship, whatever translation you have, but like that actually doesn't mean anything until you understand this part of it. And that becomes like a very critical part to understand about the, what does he mean by like we were once dead? And what does he mean that by obeying the devil and the world at work and, and our flesh? This becomes like a critical point to understanding. Like you, you can't understand grace. You can't understand the gospel. You can't understand any part of Jesus' death and resurrection until you understand this part about yourself. And so Paul's like, man, this is like, I, I need to hit you with this first so that, so that we can get to the good part. 
next, all right? So these three things Paul lists out, the devil, the world, and the flesh. The devil, the world, and the flesh. Um, these are things that are at play. As Paul begins to describe them, he, he talks a lot about this in this letter about the things of the unseen world, the powers and the principalities, like that kind of the heavenly realms, that kind of language. And um, we'll keep talking about that each week in some different capacity. But we, we begin to see that Paul, what Paul's saying is like, man, there are other things at play here that you've got to just come to grips with. All right? If you skip over this part of what's going on in the world around you and around you just in general, then you're, you're not going to fully understand what's at play. So with the devil, he's, the devil's given a name, all right, in Scripture. That this, this isn't like some just floating thing. Like there's, like this, the way Scripture talks about it, like there is a devil or Satan. And we see that he's a deceiver, an accuser. He twists the word of God. That was the first sin in Genesis 3. He twists the word of God. Did God really say there's this twisting of the word. In, in Ephesians 2, verse 15, we won't get to that here today, but it actually says, and it's a fascinating verse in, in verse 15, it says that the word of God got twisted in such a way that it caused sin between Jew and Gentile. That the actual word of God caused sin between Jew and Gentile because it got twisted. The people of God twisted the word, and then when that word got twisted, it caused sin between the Jew and Gentile. And so it's a fascinating verse that it's like, man, when the devil can do this stuff, he can begin to twist this on like a very high level. A lot of times people will think that the devil is coming after me, right? The Bible doesn't talk about it in that way. It's more on like a high level. Um, and so a lot of times, man, the devil's coming after me. Like, I don't know that you're like that important, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so but like, it's like more at like a, a high level kind of feel. Then there's the world. How does the... You mean God hates the world? No, God doesn't hate the world. He loves the world. He created the world. But I begin to describe the world. It's like it's, there can be like a territory. There can be an empire. It can be a political or economic or social or even religious system that this corruption can begin to happen. And you say, we can see it political and it's pretty easy. Economical, it's pretty easy. Even socially, it's pretty easy to see it kind of systematic. But we begin to see that what the world begins to do, it's always pushing the line. We'll see, it's like the narrative is always getting pushed a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. This is what it does, and it creates these systems. And that the way that the devil works and the way that evil works and, and uh, the presence of evil in this world is it works through systems. And, and we see it come alive and out in systems. And so it constantly happens. And what that happens is when it goes through these systems, it has generational impact within it. And we even see it in religious systems. It's easy to see it like from like a cult, like if something happens, that things get twisted. And you're like, oh, that's where I see, like, man, that corruption is really, and evil is really kind of infiltrated that. But we can see it even in denominations, in leaders, and everything. That within the religious system, you just kind of twist the word of God a little bit. And then within that religious system, they start talking about things that are not of Christ. We've had, we could give a laundry list of examples that we've seen um, over the past couple of years when you're like, man, we see groupings of people that call themselves Christians that aren't actually saying anything about the teachings of Jesus and everything about the world. And so what happens is like, oh, that's under corruption of evil and the devil. And then we have the flesh, which is disordered or competing desires within. 
All right, so you have a disordered desire. So you can have a desire to something that is technically good, but if it gets disordered, it causes more sin. Or you have a competing desire within you. You've probably felt this at some point, right? You feel like, oh man, I, just, I feel this within me, and I, I feel this tension. It's, it's your flesh, how the Bible describes it. It's like this tension within us of competing desire of like, God wants this for you, but man, you're feeling this over here, and you kind of feel that. And so that's how... Paul begins to describe, like, these are the temptations that are in front of us. These are the things that are at work, kind of out in play over everything else. That is why when someone says something like this, well, it's just sin, I'm like, mm, yeah, I mean, like, you're partially right, but it's actually not how the Bible talks about it. So, like, even when you say something like, um, like, we'll just use racism as an example. Like, racism, like, it's just sin, I'm like, Yes, it's, it's, there's sin there, but man, there are all these other things at play that come into it, all right? And the, it, we see it in the devil, in the world, and in the flesh. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease that out a little bit for you here in a second. But, but what Paul says in verse 3, he says what? That all of us have participated in this. This is why it's, it's so complicated and it's so nuanced in that we participate in some of this stuff. We build it up. Think about this. How many of you guys have ever... Um, eaten Nestle, Hershey's, or Mars chocolate? Raise your hand. Okay. You have participated because of child labor and slavery. You, because you've bought it, you've participated in the corrupt and evil system that's there. It feels weird, right? Because we can, we can say, oh, man, I can't believe that that's happening. But it's, it's far away. And, what it's, and, and listen, they've been taking the task and they're trying to make changes and all that stuff. But, but they're, it's far away. So I don't really feel it. But I'll still keep buying it. But it's, it's not me. It's, it's like them. It's like, no, 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 you paid for it. So you build it up. How many of you guys have ever bought something from Walmart, Gap, Anthropology, or Nike? <laughs> Same thing. Slavery in factories, right? I'm literally wearing Nikes right now. Um, <laughs> slavery in factories. Like the, these are things that, that come into play. And, you, you get proud, and again, like Nike's been sued and, they, and they've made changes in their factory. But they, all at certain points, these, these people have done something of unfair practices towards people, which shows that within the world, within kind of the corruption and evil and the flesh of selfish desire and everything of hurting other people, it's like we, we see like how this begins to work. And guess what? We can all play a part of it. This will be a fun one. How many have voted for somebody who is actually pretty selfish or greedy or lacks character? You find out lacks character integrity. Go ahead. You can raise your hand. No shame. No shame. Or maybe there is shame. No. Um, so get this. When you vote for people like that, what do you prop up? You don't prop up good. And so we, we say, yeah, but I'm just going to, it's not about him it's, or her. It's, it's about him or her, or, her, or her policies. And it's like, if they don't have any integrity or character, it's like, well, what are they going to do with those policies and the way that they move and the way that they vote and the way that they live? And so we, we prop up things. And so you might say, well, so am I not supposed to vote? I'm not, I'm not making any kind of political statement. I'm just saying, I just want you to see and feel when Paul says all of us are participating in this and have participated in this in some kind of way. I want you to see the depth to which all this stuff runs. 
and why it's so important to feel it and know it and be like, oh, wow, this is like way more nuanced than I thought. Think about this. When it comes to um, how this works realistically, uh, I'll use racism again because, you know, we've talked a lot about that here. Um, But think about this. If I use racism um, and prejudice as as two different concepts, all right? So I'll use racism as like this idea of um, it's about a power over another grouping of people. And then prejudice as this idea of a preconceived notion about someone. I want you, I'll, I'll frame it in two different ways. Here's how the devil in the world and the flesh begins to work in that concept. So the devil can twist something. And this is the story of our country, right? The devil twists something. You can use any country because this is prevalent in, in every single country and empire in the history of the world, all right? But we live in America, so we'll just talk about America. When this happened, the, the devil twists this idea that those who were not white were, whether it's three-fifths of a person or they had smaller brains or they weren't quite human, that they were still not fully um, evolved yet and everything else. And so that gets twisted. There's this lie, this deceiving that begins to happen. The devil also twists the word of God so that then there were Christians at that point in time that then bought into that, all right? Well, then what happens next off of that? That the world then creates this narrative, and the world steps in, and the world creates political, economic, and social, and religious systems that speak into and prop up the lie that the devil had put before us. And then when those things happen, it gets passed on generation to generation to generation. We begin to see all of this. And so even like as recently as just a few years ago, think about this, that when I, when I think about like the systems that get put in play, just a few years ago, the top banks that gave loans to, to farmers were all sued because they were charging different rates for black farmers versus white farmers. All right? So, so the systems get implicated with all this stuff. And then we begin to see, then the flesh comes after that, and it's like, well, well power, greed, and wealth, and everything that comes in, then, then the people kind of uphold all those things. And you might say, yeah, but not everyone was racist, or not everyone was this, or not everyone participated. And I would say, like, I agree with you. Not everyone, you can't put everyone in there. What I am saying, though, is that it runs so deep. And you've got to see it, and you've got to embrace it. So when someone says something like, well, it's just sin, I'm like, mm, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. It's way more nuanced. It's way deeper than that. And you can't just say it's just sin. So that's why when people say things like, well, if we just make better decisions or we put a better law on, I'm like, that doesn't work. Like it, it can be helpful, but it doesn't work because there's something bigger at play that you've got to deal with. And we'll get to how we deal with that in a second. But it's like, you've you got to deal with it. And so let me go prejudice then, because here's what the flip thing and then happens. So then if we kind of work with the devil, the world, and um, the flesh when it comes to prejudice. So then it could get flipped. So the devil could say something like this on a high, high level. Well, then all white people are racist. Is that true? No. But that narrative can get pulled out there and that things can get twisted. And that even the word of God can get twisted around some of that. And then the world can come in. And then what the world will do is then create a whole other narrative that kind of pushes that same kind of narrative. And that what they want to do is create systems right, around that. And that that gets infiltrated. And so then the reverse starts happening when the prejudice of the system. And then in the flesh, what ends up happening is it gets kind of worked out around people. We kind of play out the narrative that ends up happening, like a lack of trust of one another and more division and hatred and everything comes into play. And so it can get flipped in another way. 
And so we begin to say, well, well, no, do, do all non-white people think that way about white people? No. That's not what happens. But we see that, man, there's something deeper at play that we have got to understand and we cannot buy into the simplistic idea that it's like, oh, it's just a few bad people doing something. You can't buy into the idea, or it's just sin. And you can't buy into that because the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. It is much, much deeper than that. And so what ends up happening when we get kind of impacted by all of this stuff is um, our imaginations get wrecked by it. And we can only, like, we only see, like, like, what's in front of us. And we don't have, like, this kind of God-like, Christ-like, Christ-centered imagination about things. And here's some ways that that can happen. Oh, here we go. Our imaginations are shaped by whatever we think has the most power. And here's the thing. When I, when I, when I talk with people about solutions to things that are happening in our world or in our city. And so often, um, I'm like, no, no, no. We got to have, like, our imaginations have to be bigger because God is bigger. Our imaginations have to have a different angle because of who God is in the midst of this. And too often, our imaginations are so impacted by the devil, the world, and the flesh, and we don't even realize it. So let me give you some keys to what you might see. Um, you can only imagine what we can do on our own. We can only imagine what we can do on our own, meaning... Man, I just really say, if I just do a little bit better, then that's my imagination. And it's like, no, 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 we gotta like think bigger than that and pray bigger than that. Even the way that we pray, is it big? Do we have like big prayers, meaning that, man, the power of God could like revolutionize this whole city and flip it upside down? Do we, do we pray that way? Like the sweeping spirit of God to overcome this stuff that's happening with the devil, the world, and the flesh is so big. Do we, do we pray around that stuff? Or is it just about like what we can do? Our, our, we can only imagine a life that is, this is just the way it is mindset. Um, you'd be like, well, I mean, like this is just the system we have. And I'm like, whoa. Can you imagine when we read a letter like the Church of Ephesus, can you imagine if the early church leaders, where the church starts, and they, and they were just like, no, you know, this is just the way Rome is. Do you think we would have the New Testament? Do you think we would, like, we, we don't read that here. Like, they don't, they don't sit there and be like, yeah, we were just praying, and it's just like, man, Rome kind of sucks, and just the way it is. So we'll just kind of move on, and we'll kind of do our Christian thing. It's like, that's not what they did. They expected incredible things that for God to move. They opened themselves up and surrendered themselves in such a way that the spirit of God and the power of God would begin to move in such a powerful way that literally, like in Ephesus, in the story of Ephesus, is it flipped the entire city upside down. So it's not just the way it is. It's like, no, God can, can do something pretty big. We just have to have the imagination that it could be a reality. And then the third thing is, like, we can't imagine that our choices are actually hurting others. And that's when we really begin to see, like, man, all these decisions that we're making, do you, do you realize it could actually hurt someone else? And we just kind of neglect to even, like, process that at all. And I would say, man, if that's happening in our imagination, then I would say, like, all right, man, the devil, the world, and the flesh, we're being corrupted by, by it more than we realize. And then Paul ends up saying that because of these things, we face, face the <laughs> wrath of God. And this is something that, um, again, we gloss over verses like this because we don't, like, don't want to deal with it. But the wrath of God is actually something that we got to deal with because Paul talks about it. 
And he's like, if you want to buy into this, in kind of this mindset, then like, then you're going to face the wrath, the wrath of God. But here's, I want to give us four things to think about with the wrath of God. Number one, if there's no divine law, then everything is personal opinion. So when we think about the wrath of God, um, if you believe in a creator, okay, and you don't have to believe in a creator, that's your choice. But if you believe in a creator, then you believe that there's a reason for your life. You're not here by accident. So there's some kind of meaning for your life. If there is some kind of meaning for your life, then the reality is, is there's some kind of morality in this world. If there's some kind of morality in this world because you have meaning and that there's good and evil, then there's got to be some kind of divine law. And if there's a divine law, then that means that there are going to be consequences and wrath at some point. And so those things all kind of play into each other. And so there has to be. Um, wrath is always associated with his great love. So when we read passages about God's wrath towards something, even here what Paul is talking about, it's associated with his great love for people. And I know, like, we, 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 we think, yeah, but can it be like his wrath towards other people? I get it. But it's like, no, his, his wrath and maybe some of the consequences that happen, it's like, we've got to come to grips with this. This is a reality. The third thing, that receiving wrath is a choice. It's like we choose to be, be one way or another. We choose to be with God on something or not. And so the, the wrath piece is just a reality. It's, it's a choice. And the last one is more of a question. Do we not want God to be mad at injustice? Do we not want God to be mad at injustice? Because his wrath would then come against injustice. We're like, yes, I want him to be like angry at injustice, but just not the injustice I may cause. And so... This is like, so Paul's like setting all of this up before we get to the part about like, all right, the, the masterpiece, the workmanship part. Can we get there? Yeah. But we need to see this part first and how serious it is. Because if you skip this part, and we're going to talk about grace here in just a second. But if you skip this part and about our imagination, about the devil world and the flesh, you'll, you'll only be looking for cheap grace. A way to get by simplistic answers, and you won't want to deal with the depth of some of the things that we begin to see around us. So Paul continues on, and he says this, and I love this part. Um, it's one of my favorite things, but God. We did a series, it was my favorite series we've ever done probably, it was Best Butts in the Bible, and um, this was one of them, but God. I didn't get the graphic I want, I wanted the disciples like this, but um, <laughs> I realized it'd be too far, but uh, <clears throat> But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along, look at this, y'all, with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all the future ages as examples of this incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united, here it is, with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, 
so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. There you are, all right, for those of you that wanted it. Now, for you, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So when we think about this idea of what happens now, it's like, all right, all those other things that we talked about are reality, but let's play into what is also a reality. But God did something and this is what he did for us. He made us alive in Christ. He made us alive in Christ. And this is like massive. This is what reshapes our imaginations. This is what reshapes our uh, ability to engage topics. So you name the cultural topic where there's tension and division around right now. And it's like, mm, if we're made alive in Christ, it reshapes our entire perspective. It reshapes our entire identity. It reshapes how we engage any topic you can think. So we talked about the racism thing that I talked about earlier. It's like, mm, if I'm made alive in Christ, it reshapes the whole entire conversation between black, white, and brown folks. It reshapes the whole thing. Because we're not coming from an earthly view. We're coming from, we are made alive in Christ, and so something else can happen here. The revelation that we are made alive in Christ brings us a reconciliation between white, brown, and black people. And so it changes everything. It's like that, that it shifts the whole entire narrative. And it changes our imagination of what it begins to look like. And, and what Paul says is this whole thing is done by grace. But here's the thing. He does something before the grace part, or he, he puts something in there that I highlight. Is like He says that we are, we are with Christ, that we are raised with Christ, that we are seated with Christ, that we are united with Christ. Here's what's fascinating about that. He says that, and he's like, you're with him now. Isn't that crazy? He doesn't say you will be with Christ. You will be raised with Christ. You will be seated with Christ. You will be united. He doesn't say you will be. He says you are presently. And you're like, it doesn't feel like it. He's like, no, no, you are. And what Paul talks a lot about is this idea of a now and not yet. That you are now seated with, united with, raised with, but not fully yet to what it will be. But he wants us to know that you are now because how powerful this grace and this mercy is and how big the cross and resurrection really are. He wants to know that you are now so you begin to think eternally about what's going on. You see, when we accept the fact that we are with him now, it begins to change our entire perspective. We move that we have uh, an internal, uh, eternal reality to our present so that we can have confident hope for our future. But it like reshapes our perspective now. So again, think about when you're going through suffering and pain, and we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But if you have an eternal perspective, it, it reshapes the whole thing. It's like, whoa, whoa. I'm going through a really tough time right now, and you feel it, but man, I am resurrected with Christ, seated with Christ, united with Christ. It changes the whole thing. Whoa, this part of my life is falling apart, but, and, and there might be some things I have to deal with, but I want to look at that through the lens of being raised with Christ, seated with Christ, united with Christ. It changes our whole mindset. It changes everything. Now, all of a sudden, we're made alive in this. And he's like, man, it happens when it happens, it's because of the incredible grace that we receive from Jesus. H have you guys ever been around someone who has like a supernatural peace in times of a hard, a hard time in their life? 
You know, you know how they get there? It's because they realize that they are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, united with Christ. It doesn't mean that they ignore their pain or the hard stuff that they're going through. It's like, this is hard, but I'm also like, my perspective is eternal. And so it reshapes the present. And then this idea of grace becomes so cool because when we look at grace, here's the reality of grace. Hold on. Here's the idea. Grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. We're coming off gift season. And um, here's the thing about gifts. If I give a gift to you in Western culture, you receive it, and you're like, oh, thanks. And we move on, right? It's cool. It's, I just received a gift. And so sometimes we put this on Jesus as like, this is how grace was given. Like, here you go. And you're like, oh, thanks, Jesus. That was nice, right? But that's actually not how, like in Eastern culture, here, if, with Eastern cultures, if I give you a gift it means that I also expect a gift back. That when, when you're given a gift in Eastern cultures, like, here's what I'm saying to you. I want a relationship with you, and so I expect you to have a relationship back. And so you're like, well, hold on. I thought it was a gift. I was like, well, it's because you're a Westerner. <laughs> you just think we, need, we get everything, right? So it's like, no, no, no. When this was written, actually, when they talked about grace, it was like, I'm going to give you a gift. But here's what I expect back. We're now in relationship together. And so grace is a gift, no doubt. And grace is not earned, but grace is like, it's a gift. But there's an establishment of relationship. And so here's the thing. Grace isn't free. I know that might feel weird to say, but it isn't free. Grace isn't free. There's expectations that go with this grace. There are expectations of us that receive this grace. And this is what I mean. If you want to ignore the realities of the devil, the world, and the flesh, and you want to think that grace is just free, and you can just kind of take it how you want to and everything, I'm like, that is cheap grace. That is a shallow way to view this whole Jesus thing. But man, when Paul talks about it, it's like, no, this grace isn't free. This grace comes with expectations. Um, John Barclays, who's a, uh, uh, he's a commentator and theologian, and he said this way, that grace is unconditioned, not unconditional. Meaning, it's not based on worth or work, but it does come with expectations. So at the end of this passage, in verse 10, it says that you are created, right? And you receive this grace, and you're God's masterpiece and everything. In the expectation of upon receiving this gift of grace, the expectation is that you will live it out and do good works. And so there's expectations for you and for me as followers of Jesus to do something uh, with this. And so here's what ends up happening with grace. Grace causes us to become more acutely aware of what sin does in our life, so we take it more seriously, not less. And so grace becomes um, pivotal in understanding. It's like, man, God has expectations of me. And I'm saved for good works. I'm saved for something. It's like, I, then I become way more aware of the things that take me away from him. I need to rid myself of those things. Here's the last thing with grace. The grace reconciles us to one another. When verse 9, when Paul says that no one can boast, here's what he's saying. 
When grace is really at work in a community, you can come up, Laura. When grace is at work in a community, um, no one can boast. So here's what that ends up meaning. This is the revelation and reconciliation. Um, there's no favoritism. There's no sexism. There's no racism. There's no prejudice. Um, whatever any other ism there is. There's no, there's, none of those things are at play now in a community that's full of grace. It's not even, it's not even possible when the grace of God is actually at work. And so here's what I want us to do. We're going to take communion in just a second. Um, but I want to leave us with this thought.